Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and I'm with Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Uh, he's with me right now, drinking his liqueur. That's right. And Jerry's over there, fresh back from San Francisco. Like, yeah. everything's coming up aces in this room right now. Just because we're here? Yeah, okay. just because <laughs> it's stuff you should know. That's right. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Hey, I'd like to uh, shout out Little Bit Sweets. For no, for no reason other than they make awesome candy. Well, yeah. send it to us from time to time. And Although, we're doing, it's been a little while. <laughs> well, we're doing chocolate today, and Little Bit Sweets in Brooklyn, New York, now has a retail space. Oh, yeah, congratulations. At Chelsea Market. You ever been there? That's awesome. I have not. Yeah. Oh, wait, is that the one like that's relatively new and yeah. awesome? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if they're rubbing elbows with like Mario Batali and all that. Doesn't he have a place there? I don't know. I think he does. I've been through there though. It's it's a cool place. That's neat. So congratulations to Liz and Jen of Little yeah. Bit Sweets. Uh, Congrats, you guys. Go see them at Chelsea Market. They make great chocolate. And I'm gonna ask Liz after this is released if we screwed it up really bad or oh. if we got it pretty pretty good. Oh, the chocolate thing. Yeah, yeah. Because she'll know. Well, sure. She's a chocolatier. That's right. Um. Okay, that was nice of you, Chuck. Yeah. Um, Chuck. Yes. <laughs> well, you just kind of screwed up my intro question. Oh, really? What was it? Have you ever had chocolate? <laughs> do you know about chocolate? Yeah, I know a little bit about chocolate. I do, too, now. Um, and I was surprised at reading this article how closely this episode will probably resemble our coffee episode. I knew you were going to say that. It's just like they're almost like yeah. two two beans in the same pod. Yeah, and some of the processes are similar, and uh, yeah, I totally thought the same thing. Yeah, people are exploited in much the same way. Yeah, true. There's child slavery involved. Sure. Fair trade swoops in and tries to like correct that. Yeah, there's beans, there's roasting, there's drying. Yeah. yeah. All sorts of uh, similar processes. And there's aficionados who, I imagine, can tell the difference between a bean grown one place and yeah. a bean grown another place because it makes a difference, as we'll find. True. I think we should finish out. Maybe we could make a sweet and do wine. And then those oh, yeah. will be kind of three similar. Well, no, we we got to put it in with our like beer and cheese episodes oh, yeah. too. That's right. We'll call it the Good Life Suite. <laughs> <laughs> Let's add yachts at the end just to cap it off. It what? Yachts. Oh, yachts. Yeah, beer, wine, cheese, chocolate. Yachts. Yachts. I never realized Coffee. how ugly that word is until just now. Yeah. Yachts. That's the way I said it. Uh, even if you say it like it's spelled, you come up with yachts. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid word. So, Chuck. Yes. Chocolate, it turns out, um, is actually a pretty ancient thing. Yeah. Like eating chocolate. It grows from the cacao tree. Well, consuming chocolate. Right. Okay. Yes. Nice catch. Yeah. Um, they found a bowl um, from somewhere in Mesoamerica uh, that dates back to, I think, 1300 BCE. Yeah. Um, and it has residue, chocolate residue in it. Still? Yeah. Yum. Traces of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we know that people have been consuming chocolate since at least 1300 BCE. It's highly unlikely that we just happened to find the first bowl that was ever used <laughs> yeah. to, con- to consume chocolate for the first time. Right. Um, and we know that the first, uh, first record of somebody mentioning chocolate came about 300 AD. The Maya were drinking it back then. That's right. 
Yeah. They offered it to the gods. Yes. It was highly cherished. It was. But it was a beverage, and for 90% of chocolate's life, it has been a beverage. Uh, gritty, frothy, kind of uh, bitter beverage. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they would add uh, cinnamon, hot pepper. Yeah. Um, I like and- hot pepper and chocolate, by the way. Yeah, I do too. Like the chili chocolates? Mm-hmm. So good. A nice sip in chocolate? <laughs> well, no, I mean the, the hard variety. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. It's good in like a sipping chocolate too. Oh, really? You can come across that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the Maya were the ones who like really kind of founded chocolate consumption as we understand it. And then it was adopted by the Aztecs who had a pretty, um, short memory span apparently. Because the Aztecs, the Triple Alliance, conquered the Maya at some point and said, hey, we like this chocolate, but we're going to forget that we got it from the Maya. We're going to say we got it from the god uh, Quetzalcoatl. Right. And he was the a god who was kicked out of the dominion of gods for giving chocolate to the Aztecs, as the yeah. Aztecs tell it. Which is not nice. What, getting kicked out? Yeah, for sharing your chocolate. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, because you're out chocolate. And you got kicked out of the Pantheon. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and the Aztecs um, called chocolate, I'm going to pronounce that, Huacatel. I think that's probably right. Um, and this thought to mean, uh, mean bitter water. Mm-hmm. And like you said, they would add certain spices to it uh, to make it more palatable. But the, the gods and the kings and everyone thought it, you know, it was like uh, like a super drink. So they would drink, right. like, tons of it. Well, yeah, Montezuma was apparently um, f- fond enough of it that he drank, like, 50 cups of it a day. That's crazy. I think we said that in another one. It, that sounded familiar. It did that to me, stat. too. Yeah. Or maybe he drank lots of coffee, too. I wonder what it was. I don't know. Um, it was a currency? Yeah. There was actually, there's an, actually a 16th century Aztec document that is basically a currency exchange for cacao pods yeah for, or no the uh beans for chocolate beans yeah, yeah. there's like a hundred of them buys a turkey yep and it's a one-for-one one exchange for a good tamale yeah that's a pretty good deal yeah i'd take that yeah um but the point is is chocolate like it, the it was sacred to the mesoamericans yeah it was currency it was a big deal uh and then the spaniards came along and they said what are you guys drinking and they took a sip and they pff, spit it out. <laughs> and then they tried it again. They're like, maybe it's okay. And there's some pretty good quotes about what the Spaniards thought of chocolate and how it tasted. Yeah, one of them uh, comes from uh, a Jesuit missionary. And he said, it is as loathsome to such as are not acquainted with it, having a scum or froth that is very unpleasant taste. Yeah, I also saw another quote that said um, it was a Spaniard who referred to chocolate as a bitter drink for pigs. Yeah, I get. I mean, really bitter chocolate, I can't stomach. No, and that's what they were drinking. I mean, like, yeah. the concept of sweet chocolate came thanks to Europe, and it came about yeah. this time. So um, uh, who was it that conquered the Aztecs? Cortez. Cortez, the killer. Um, Cortez basically said, all right. I'm going to take this chocolate, and we're going to see what Europe does to it. And Europe went crazy for it. They yeah, loved of course, it. they sweetened it. Right. That was the that was Europe's big um, addition to chocolate. Was yeah, well, yeah. Adding sugar cane or honey or molasses or something to the chocolate to sweeten it. And all of a sudden, Europe is like, we like this. Let's enslave the people that exactly. grow it. <laughs> Cortez comes back and says, good news. They love the chocolate. 
And uh, Montezuma and the rest of the Triple Alliance were like, that's great. We don't care. He's like, no, no, this does pertain to you. Yeah. This is good news and bad news. Right, exactly. (laughs) Bad news is you have a new great father. (laughs) Meet my thunder stick. Sure, the boomstick. Uh, (laughs) So what the Europeans did, they enslaved them for a while, and then the demand rose. So they said, hey, why don't we just start growing this stuff in territories that we um, have conquered, which is uh, you can only uh, grow the cacao tree within about 20 degrees North or south of the equator, the tropics. Yeah, yeah, um, and it likes uh, very wet conditions, and it's also apparently the cacao tree is really um, finicky, which we'll talk about. But um, when they did figure out that they could plant it along the tropics, yeah, the the cost of chocolate dropped tremendously in Europe. Yeah, which was necessary to make it, you know, something that wasn't just for royalty. Right, and then still at this time, people were consuming it as a drink, even in Europe as well, Yeah, but they were sweetening it. Um, and then so you would have a person who got a hold of the beans, roasted them, uh, and then made their own chocolate and then sold it all in one place. Yeah. Then the Industrial Revolution happened, and everybody applied the principles of industry to everything, yeah, basically smash everything. Right, exactly, and see what happens. Use a machine and smash it. Yeah. Unless you're a Luddite, and then you smash the machine itself. That's right. Uh, in 1828, um, there was a Dutch entrepreneur named Conrad uh, Johannes van Houten. <laughs> you think in a millhouse? Yeah. Yeah. How can you not? <laughs> I know. Um, and he was the first one to press the cacao bean, um, which separates, and we'll get into all this later, but it, essentially it separated the cacao into the butter mm-hmm. and the, the powder. The dry part. Right. And he figured out if you add a little more butter back into it, which is strange, um, you can make a bar. Yeah. Or if you add a little alkali, be a little less bitter, a little more palatable. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Joseph Fry, an Englishman, said, hey, why don't we add a little sugar, maybe a little more cocoa butter, and now we have the first chocolate bar. Okay. So I have it wrong. Joseph Fry invented the cocoa, the chocolate bar. Yeah. Van Houten invented Dutch cocoa. Which yeah. is a sweeter cocoa powder. And Rodolph Lint, if you you might recognize that. Oh, name, yeah. Still. How do you not like Lint? Uh, he invented conking in uh, 1879, and we'll get into what that is later, but it's a pretty important process. But it's conk like the shell. Yeah, because the first machine the was fritter. shaped like a shell. Right. Um, but we'll get into what that means, but it basically makes it uh, smoother and more affordable. You can mass produce it right. as like the chocolate bars we know and love. And then uh, in the early 1900s, all this is going on within a few decades. Yeah. There's like all these sudden quick advances in chocolate that, that takes chocolate from this frothy, gritty, bitter drink yeah. to chocolate as we understand it today, mm-hmm. starting in the 19th century. And then I think in the 1904, early 1900s, a guy uh, with the last name of Nestle mm. thought to add milk powder, and then we had milk chocolate, and the, the humanity achieved its pinnacle. That's right. Uh, Henry or Henry Nels, uh, Nestle and Milton Hershey, mm-hmm. very important dudes. Sure. Um, and that was that was for milk chocolate, but you know you can also make uh, dark chocolate less bitter by some of the same processes, because you know when you buy the dark chocolate, it has a percentage of cacao. Right. And the higher the percentage, the more bitter it is. Right. I can't go above like 70 is my max. Is it? Yeah. Do, do, your, do your mouth just start catching on fire? Your teeth no, fall out or bitter. what happened? Like that bitter chocolate taste. Some people your love it. Super, super bittery. I'm a super taster with bitter. Yeah. Um, 
Do you remember in our taste episode we talked about super tasters? Yeah. Like, since that episode, I've noticed that with bitter, like, I taste it way more than most people. Interesting. Yeah. And, um. How do you like your chocolate? Like, I can handle dark chocolate, but, like, it tastes really bitter to me. Uh huh. But, like, I can barely handle grapefruit. I had to train myself to enjoy grapefruit. Yeah, I don't like grapefruit. Yeah. Maybe you're a bitter super taster, yeah, too. Maybe. But if you, I've, I can tell you that just practice makes perfect with <laughs> drinking grapefruit juice. Oh, well, for me eating chocolate. <laughs> right. Um, and I like, I sprinkle a little sea salt on it now too, which is Do really Do you like good. that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's get into the, the seed or the bean a little bit. Uh, they grow in pods on a tree and the tree itself is, they, they grow taller than 25 feet, but for, um, cultivation, they trim them. So they don't grow above 25 feet? Yeah, about 10 or 12 is the, the height that they try to keep them at. Yeah, because people like climb up and pick them. Yeah, this is this is something I find very interesting about. Or not climb. I think they use a long, uh, a long tool. Like a telescopic... Um, Knife. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is... it's The cacao trees are so fickle that they actually have kept chocolate production as like a... Uh, a family business. Yeah, you can't mass produce these things. You can't mass harvest these things. It's mm-hmm. still got to be done by hand. Yeah. Because the pods and the seeds don't all ripen at the same time. Right. So you can't just drive a machine in there and be like, "Get all those pods out." And so you have to do them like individually one by one when they're ready to come off the tree. Plus um the uh harvesting a seed pod which is about the shape of a long orange football, yeah. about 12 inches long. Um the way you harvest it is really important because if you break off the the bloom yeah. that it's growing out of, you will damage it so that no other pods grow out of that. So it's a really, really finicky tree. It's kind of cool. It is cool. Think, you know? Um, 90% of the world's cacao is grown by just two and a half million farmers, all of them working five to ten acre plots, family plots. Yeah, so it's like, like a family farming business for sure. Yeah, we like we said earlier, it was earlier it was Mesoamerica, but now most of the farms are in Africa and West Africa. Yeah, Cote d'Ivoire is like the chalk, the cacao producing. Was that Ivory Coast? Yeah. Okay. They prefer Cote d'Ivoire. Really? I think so. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, they produce more than a million metric tons just on the oh, the Cote d'Ivoire. Excuse me right. per year. Um, there are only three types of uh, three varieties of bean. Right, and the uh, they are the for, uh, forestero, and it's the most common because it yields the most beans. It has the most chocolatey taste too. Yeah, and it's the hardiest, so like, right. they do better. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, you have the uh, criollo, which is very complex but very difficult to grow, very delicate, mm-hmm. and a small percentage of all the cacao beans that are harvested. Right, and then there's the trinitario, which is a hybrid of the uh, criollo. Is that how we're saying it? Yeah. And the Forestero, that somebody took a Forestero to Trinidad uh, where they were growing Criollo. Yeah. And they hybridized. So you have like basically this full spectrum of finicky and then different tastes of chocolate. Yeah. And they and like we said earlier, like with coffee and like with grapes for wine, if you're an aficionado, you know what what geographical location will produce different flavors and tastes. Right. And companies, when they make chocolate, are very picky about and secretive about exactly where they get their beans. Some it's all one farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, some they like, like to do a nice blend, but that's a trade secret. Right. But um, just because you have a 
Forastero being in one part of the country doesn't mean it'll taste the same as in the other part. Right. So so not only do these different varieties produce different tastes, like depending on where you grew a specific variety, it'll taste different from that same variety grown elsewhere. That's right. Um, and those trees, we should say, are called uh, Theodoroma cacao. Yeah. They were named by Linnaeus, um, and it, it translates to cacao, food of the gods. And those those three varieties aren't the only three, but they're the three dominant varieties grown worldwide. Oh, are there more than that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I guess we should get into a little bit about the process. Yeah, because what interested me is the all those European additions to the process of producing chocolate yeah. are still based on the original ancient means of growing yeah. and producing chocolate. So it's like it's you still go through the process of producing chocolate, then you just take it through these additional steps to make chocolate as we understand it. Yeah. Which is pretty cool because they're still, they're doing this ancient method. Yeah. Like still. You've heard there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's only one way to make chocolate. (laughs) You know, machinery has improved, but you're right. It's still the same, which is really neat. Right. Uh, So you have these ripened pods like we talked about. They change color from green to orange uh, and then it's time to cut them down. Uh, and then the beans and pulp are removed and left to ferment, uh, which is exactly what you think. They cover it up with banana leaves and stuff and let the moisture seep out of it slowly. Um, yeah, and this is one of the few things where alcohol is just a byproduct of the fermentation process rather than the goal. Right. Because I, I, I'm sure some people drink this chocolate alcohol, but for the most that. part it's discarded. Is it? Yeah, as far as I know. I don't think Nestle's bottling it or anything. Yeah, but I bet the farm workers might <laughs> right. have a nib. <laughs> I wonder what that tastes like. I'll bet it's awful. I'm sure it is. Uh, so in the in the cacao bean, um, there's things like bacteria and yeast that produce acids and gases. And they break down some of those sugars over the course of this, the, this uh, fermentation process. And they're going to end up dark brown in the end. Right after about a week of fermenting. Yep. And then they... Pack them in the jute bags, take them to the buyers. They grade the beans because, you know, they, it's very specific, like the quality of the bean. You'll get a certain price, you know, depending on how good they are. Right. And um, then uh, it goes on to the next step. Which is where the companies who produce chocolate buy the seeds from the buyers. That's right. Uh, and the, those sugars being broken down in the fermentation process become very, very important at this step. Because the first thing you do is you take all of your uh, cacao beans yeah. and uh, roast them. And when you're roasting, and I've, in this article it says that sometimes you you just roast the nibs first. I, I found that pretty much everybody roasts the bean and then roasts the nib separately later on. Yeah, the nib is actually the meat. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's actually what becomes chocolate. Right. A cacao bean has a shell that you take off and the meat inside is a cocoa nib. Yeah. Um, so you roast the, the bean first, and then later on you roast the uh, nib itself. And as you're roasting it, what you're doing is creating something called the Maillard reaction. Yeah, man. Which is basically the sugars that were broken down and exposed during fermentation are combined with amino acids that are also present in the cacao. Yeah. And when placed together in the presence of heat, you have something called flavor compounds that are produced. And depending on the uh, amino acid present, whether it's cheese or whether it's beer or whether whatever it is, right. bread, um, 
the the sugars and the amino acids are going to react differently to create different flavors. And with chocolate specifically, these different amino acids produce chocolate flavor. Yeah, it's uh, non-enzymatic browning, and if it's not just chocolate. I mean, if you like right. pretzels, mm-hmm. or if you like if you like the flavor of anything. Well, no, that's not true. It's only certain things that have this reaction. Oh, really? Yeah, like um, bread when it's toasted or right. baked, um, a steak when it's browned. But anything important. <laughs> French fries. All right. Uh, and so the roasting process, it's anywhere from 30 minutes to a couple of hours at about 250 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. And every company has their own methods for this. You know, everyone's going to have their own specific, like, roasting process. But that's a, a general thing. Right. Uh, so the next thing that happened is you need to, to get that nib extracted. And so they quickly cool the beans and send them through what's called a cracker and a fanner. Mm. And that splits the shell and blows off the shell. And you're left with the nib. And then uh, at that point, the nib is ready to go to the mill to be ground. Well, or it's roasted and then ground into chocolate liquor. So it's it's roasted again yeah. before it's ground? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like if anything, the nib's the thing you want to roast for sure. This article insinuates that um, you might not roast the, the bean. You're just going to roast the nib. Gotcha. You definitely roast the nib first. Okay. Because that's where the flavor compounds come from. But you can roast the nib inside the bean too, right? Yeah. Okay. It, like as a two-step process. Gotcha. Okay. So now it goes to the grinder, a uh, melangeur, which is French. And uh, there are these big granite rollers that bas- basically mash up those nibs into a paste they call the mass. Then that goes into a press at about 6,000 pounds per square inch. That's a lot, man. It's a whole lot. That so, would crush you flat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so much that it actually melts the cocoa butter into a liquid called chocolate liquor. It's pressure. From pressure. Just from pressure. Yeah. And friction. Oh, okay. Well, that produces heat. Yeah. So that's your chocolate liquor, even though it's not alcoholic at all. And that was Van Houten that came up with the process you just described, right? He's the one who figured out how to separate powder from butter. <laughs> Hey, Bart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Millpool. Millhouse Van Houten. So then you've got your two components. It basically separates them. You've got your liquid cocoa butter at this point and your powder. Um, It's called a press cake. Your dried powder is. Or cocoa cake. Cocoa cake? Mm -hmm. I like that better, actually. I do, too. Um, So depending on what what, what your purpose is from here, you might go in some different directions. If you're just going to make, like, Nestle Quick. You know, chocolate milk mix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to pulverize that powder into a finer powder. So that's another thing I saw on the Ghirardelli site when they were describing how they make chocolate. Uh-huh. It sounds like you would pulverize that that um, cocoa cake. cake, yeah, no matter what. And then the f- the harder or the more you pulverize it, um, the the smaller the micron of the the um, chocolate, yeah, cocoa powder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the finer that is, the less grainy your end result chocolate will be. Right. So like Ghirardelli says that they grind theirs down to 19 microns. Because they want a very smooth product. Exactly. Because they're Ghirardelli. Right. (laughs) And then the butter or whatever you introduce back into, whether it's cocoa butter or say like um, canola oil or something, is going to also have an impact on the quality of the chocolate made. Yeah. And if you're reintroducing cocoa butter, it's a better quality, obviously, than vegetable oil. Yeah. Um, all right. This is also where you add in sugar, some other flavorings. Lectithin? Yeah, what is that? 
I was hoping you'd know. Uh, it's an emulsifier. Oh, okay. So it, you know, makes it uh, fluffier, lighter. All right. That to me is like the fact of the podcast. Like, how many times have you looked at a, an ingredients list and been like, "What is lactopin?" Yeah. It's an emulsifier, friends. <laughs> That's the fact of the podcast. Yeah. Strangely. All right. I haven't picked mine yet. <laughs> Maybe cocoa cake. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so next up, we have um, the process that Lint figured out early on that we talked about, conking. And some people say this was an accident because he forgot and left it in a melangeur too long. Right. Which may be true. Who knows? But basically what you get is a smooth liquid, uh, which makes it easier to mold into chocolate bars. So I looked again on the Ghirardelli site. They had um, basically the uh, conker or the conking machine. Is just like a huge vat with two paddles, like constantly going around. Yeah, I've seen other ones too. It, uh, it was just bizarre how this article reads. Like, like they almost—I think they literally call it a magic process that people don't fully understand. And basically, to me, it was like, no, you're just kind of mixing these ingredients together for a very long time. Yeah, <laughs> and it's such that the cocoa powder, every grain, every micron of cocoa powder becomes coated with cocoa butter. Yeah, it's just really intense mixing. Exactly. It's not magic. <laughs> right. Yeah, I just thought that was really strange. Yeah, that was a little weird. Article. Agreed. It was really uh, insane clown posse-ish. <laughs> <laughs> Conking is magic. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, so it's not magic. It's just really, really thorough, thorough mixing. Um, evenly distributes that cocoa butter. It polishes the particles, makes everything super smooth and delicious. Uh, generates a little bit of heat. Yeah, which helps create more flavor compounds. Yeah. Because um, in this time, it's with the sugars and the amino acids in the milk. That's right. Combining with those things in the chocolate, too, which takes you to flavor country. And it's where the that mal- malliard, malliard? That's what I'm talking about. Reaction happens, yeah. Yeah, because it, it happens again because it's producing heat. And then finally, it introduces air, which uh, removes even more bitterness. So that, that's the purpose of the magic... Of conking. <laughs> then we have to temper it. Tempering, they don't even really say what it is either. So you know how, like, if you make candy, you have to have a candy thermometer or else it's going to just be completely screwed up? Yeah. And, like, a candy recipe will be like, do not go past this temperature. Yes. So they figured out that there's six stages of crystal formation. Well, we got to say what tempering is first. I'm, I, th- I thought I was. Well, it's stirring. Oh, <laughs> It's magic stirring. It's stirring, heating, and cooling, and reheating while you're stirring. Yeah, that's what tempering is. Exactly. But what you're doing on a uh, chemical level, yes, uh, is that you're you're forming cocoa crystals, and there's six types of cocoa crystals that can possibly form in chocolate, and they've figured out that type five crystals are the ones that make the best chocolate. Yeah. So you want to heat your chocolate up to the point where all these type one through four crystals turn into type five crystals, yeah. but not so much that your type five crystals turn into type six crystals because at that point um, you're fired if yeah. you work in a chocolate factory. Man, you make type six crystals, you're in big trouble. Well, they have machines that do this now. Right, but before sure. they would fire you on the spot for making type six crystals. Probably. Yeah, or if you set the machine wrong, they can fire you. <laughs> right. I'm sure. You're going to get fired one way or another. Yeah, someone's getting fired. But you also don't want it so uh, – you don't want the temperature to go uh, – to stop before it hits 93 degrees Fahrenheit, which is apparently the magic temperature for type five crystals, or else you'll just have type four crystals. Yeah, which apparently aren't any good. So think about this process that's been undergone that started with – 
picking seed pods by hand, yeah. fermenting them under banana leaves. Well, or- how'd they figure that out, though? Like, who first looked at these disgusting-looking things right. and said, hey, I bet that would be good? Like, haven't you wondered how many people had to die <laughs> to figure out, like, what we can and can't eat as human oh, yeah. beings? sure. Like, along the way? Yeah. There, there had to be a lot of, like, well, so we stay away from that. Yeah. Uh, let's try this weird looking thing next. Who's up? Who's well, the first people to eat anything. I'm sure what, the first person that looked at a cow and said, you know, I bet in that furry creature inside that lies right. some pretty nice meat. Yeah. The you cow know. went, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. I like that stuff. I like going back to the beginnings. But this process is just mind boggling just, yeah. just to make chocolate. And I'm really glad that all these people came together to contribute to chocolate to the creation of chocolate as we understand it and love it today agreed sir yeah i love chocolate uh so the tempering process in the end besides the chemical gobbledygook is going to define how hard and shiny and glossy that chocolate's going to end up being yep so have we made the chocolate yes we have uh i think you just cool it and then you press it into bars or whatever yum uh and chuck that seems like a, a fantastic place to put a message break what do you think yes Okay, so uh, we're back to chocolate. Yeah, so back to chocolate. Uh, We should talk about a guy named Milton Hershey, who was uh, uh, a great guy because he made chocolate inexpensive and able to get it into the hands of children for just a few pennies a bar Yeah, back in the day. And now people love it worldwide. They do, and now they can love it in all sorts of weird ways, too. Like, you know, I love the chocolate-covered potato chips. Yeah, those are good. Chocolate covered bacon. Uh, I can't. I don't know if I've ever had that or not. Yeah, it's good. Um, yeah, pretty much chocolate and anything's fine. Yeah, I like the salt. I like the heat. Um, along with chocolate, you can get chocolate facials these days. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that though. Oh, why not? Yeah, I don't know. Give me a mud mask. But uh, made of chocolate? <laughs> no, made of mud. Um. The, we should probably say who eats the most chocolate in the world. The Americans, probably? No. The Americans eat about half as much chocolate as the Brits, the Germans, and the Swiss. Yeah, of course, the Swiss. They each eat about 24 pounds a year. The average Swiss person eats 24 pounds of That's chocolate a, 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 a year. Oh, man, I'm sure they're like... Pfft. Toblerone. See, I don't like chocolate snobs because I like a variety of chocolate. People that turn their nose up at, at like a milk chocolate bar, mm-hmm. it still tastes good. I like milk chocolate, but also like the nice dark chocolate. You're equal opportunity chocolate eater. I love chocolate, dude. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, but Americans eat about 12 pounds a year, by the way, 10 to 12. Uh, That's still a lot of chocolate. It is. It's Man. a lot of chocolate. Um, so we talked earlier well, I guess let's talk a little bit about the health properties of chocolate. Yes. Because that's a big deal. Um, they have things called flavonoids and uh, phenolics, antioxidants that help protect your heart, same stuff that's found in wine. Mm-hmm. If you're eating the dark chocolate, milk chocolate's not good for you. No, but, it's, but it it's, is in some ways, which I will mention in a second. Okay. Um, but it can help prevent bad cholesterol or your risk of heart disease. That's if you're eating dark chocolate, and not a ton of it, like an ounce and a half or so. Right, and I think the purer the chocolate, the better it is for you, the more flavonoids present. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's also long, it's also been long suspected that chocolate has an effect on your mood 
in, in that it improves your mood. Yeah. And uh, I saw a study from 2007 that finally was like, okay, well, I think we all agree that chocolate improves the mood. How? How long does it last? Yeah. And they figured out that it, uh, like if you're in a bad mood or in any kind of mood, chocolate will improve your mood. It, it has a noticeable effect. Yeah. But it only lasts for three minutes. Really? Yeah. And it's almost instantaneous, too. So the researchers were like, well, it's not possible that it's all of these, like, uh, there's cannabinoids, which are th- also found in pot. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, there's other compounds that have an effect on our neurotransmitters, but it's not possible to eat chocolate and have your mood improved via that because it takes about an hour for those compounds to get to our brain. And then it lasts for three minutes? Yes. And it's immediate. Oh, okay. So it's not those. It's not those. They oh, okay. think that it's the flavor and the taste and the pleasure yeah. that comes from chocolate hitting the tongue. Well, that's like a good pan-fried steak is good for my mood, too. Exactly. You know? Right. So you should eat steak and chocolate a lot because it's good for your mood <laughs> every three minutes at least. I wonder how long steak lasts, though. I don't know. But the other, the other exceptional thing about chocolate hitting your tongue and it having probably an effect on your mood is that remember that um that point that they they um bake chocolate crystals to yeah. is 93 degrees well your tongue is 90 something and change it's usually more than that yeah so your the chocolate melts and those flavor crystals melt just perfectly just touching your tongue too yeah just cuz it's close to our own body temperature right that's pretty so neat so that would have some sort of effect on your uh, that would explain why it happens immediately Gotcha. With good chocolate, too. Mm. Uh, we should talk about theobromine for a second. Uh, it's a chemical compound. It's an alkaloid that's in chocolate and some other foods, plant-based foods. And it has a similar effect as caffeine. And they do use it, just like caffeine, to help treat heart conditions, some heart conditions, like narrowing of the blood vessels or stimulating the heart. Mm-hmm. And that's also the thing in it that is bad for your dogs. Oh, yeah? Theobromine. Huh. Which is why you don't want to feed your dog chocolate. Uh, no, you don't. I think most everyone knows this by now. Yeah. Uh, a little bit will make them just kind of sick, but if they eat too much, they can, it can kill them. It'll make them dead. Yeah, which is the worst kind of sick. And we mentioned earlier the uh, child labor, uh, sort of like with coffee, uh-huh. exploiting kids to, to mine these coffee beans. And um, as many as 200,000 children work in the cacao fields. And Cote d'Ivoire alone, I think. Yeah, and that's just in the Ivory Coast. So, um, and some of them are child slaves. So, um, if you want to not do that, you search out fair trade right. or organic. Apparently, organic um, chocolate isn't grown from those farms. Supposedly, but it, that technically has nothing to do with it being organic. No, but I think they just said that the organic farms aren't uh, right slave farms. Gotcha. So, fair trade, as always, might cost you a little more. What else is there? You got anything else? I don't think I have anything else. Uh, the Japanese apparently have a day, two days, for chocolate exchange exclusively. There's Valentine's Day. Boo. Where women give men chocolate. Yeah. And then there's uh, White Day a month later, which was apparently invented by a candy maker. Of course it was. Where men give women chocolate. And even if you don't like the woman who gave you chocolate, yeah. you're still obligated obligated to give her chocolate. It's... um. Giri Choco, which means obligation chocolates. Yeah, see, I ignore all those like clearly corporate sponsored. Right? Do you call your mom giving. on Mother's Day and just go go to hell? <laughs> I do. 
No, you don't. You're yeah. nice to And she mom. appreciates the call. She's I'm just like, I'm so glad you <laughs> remembered. me this year. <laughs> no, Mother's Day, that's different. Mother's Day and Father's Day, I'll endorse those. Those are completely blatantly made up holidays? Yeah, but I don't buy them anything. It's not like oh. there's a... Well, a, there you go. You figured out a way to stick it to the man. It's not a gift behind that that I have to get. I believe the, the, a woman um, invented Mother's Day. And by the end of her life, was like actively, vocally protesting against the celebration of it because it had been hijacked by oh, really? um, the greeting card companies. Yeah, I'll, I'll usually do a, uh, like, go to lunch or something like that. Nice. That's all my mom wants is time. Oh, sure. You know? Yeah. Good Good for you, Chuck. You're a good son. I try to be. Um, okay, well, uh, that's it for us talking about Chuck's relationship with his mom. Right? I think so. Okay. Well, I mean... We, and chocolate. There's a whole other list of things we could get into, <laughs> yeah. but that's not for this room. Chuck is a good son. Um, if you want to learn more about chocolate, right? Yeah. You can type that word into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this one uh, from a teacher because you put out the call to teachers. How can we fix the system? I feel like we did that together. And we got a lot of calls and uh, emails from teachers. Not calls, just emails. <laughs> he got call outs. Hey, hey, guy. <laughs> uh, so this is, and there were a lot of great emails, and I could only pick one. So this is from uh, Colin. Hey, guys, I've been a history teacher for the past seven years. It is my profession of choice, and I look forward to being an old fossil of a teacher one day. You're asking about problems with the educational system and possible solutions. I come from an interesting angle. I'm a public school teacher and spent the past six years uh, at an inner city middle school Uh, there i experienced the following challenges one through three one parents uh, essentially being absent therefore having the teachers do the parenting Mm -hmm. number two uh, lack of accountability for students while everything is pushed on to the teachers Mm -hmm. and number three unrealistic demands by the federal government that is not supported by sufficient funding or resources can you see that list written on a chalkboard yeah like that is a teacher list right there it's a teacher list uh, and lastly, my uh, probably most, um, unfortunately, a lack of respect for my profession. Uh, my people have been called parasites and lazy by certain politicians and are accused of doing next to nothing and just enjoying summer vacations. In reality, we are often underpaid and overworked. These are teachers who, uh, there are teachers who do make a good wage, but that is often after 20 plus years in a school system. My wife and I, due to the economy, have received just one raise in seven years. Wow. So after three quarters of a decade, uh, we're still almost making the same as a first-year teacher. And uh, then he went on to um, talk about charter schools, uh-huh. sort of at length, which I won't get into. But I think we should do a, a podcast on uh, charter schools at some point. We need to do a podcast on like education, on the yeah. education system or like something. Like a suite. Yeah, sweet. sweet. Uh, so anyways, guys, sorry for the book. I'm sure an email this long would never be read on the show. That was reverse psychology. It was. And it worked. Uh, but you guys rock. And thanks for taking the time to even read it. Have a great day, Colin. Thanks, Mr. C. We appreciate you writing <laughs> in. We appreciate everybody writing in. I mean, like, if, if you put all of them together, you start to get a clear picture because, you know, he named just three. Yeah. There, We've gotten all sorts of different suggestions. The test, standardized testing is a big one that's sure. coming up. Um, yeah, there's, there's a, a lot wrong, we yeah. found out. Like, I think we're kind of hoping to fix things but right now i'm just realizing what a daunting task is facing the, the u.s education system yeah we'll do our part by 
podcasting and running our mouths about it. Okay. Well, uh, if you want to get in touch with us to let us know anything, um, how to fix anything, a toaster oven, the education system, what have you, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email, which probably worked best, to stuffpodcast at discovery.com. That's right, right? That's right. And then, of course, you should always visit our home on the web. Make it your homepage, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the all-new 2014 Toyota Corolla.